Today on Gulf Streams, I'm here with Aaron Cooney, an instructor in Rice's Environmental Studies program who teaches on food justice, Rachel Lockhart Folkerts of Plant It Forward, and Tommy Garcia Prats of Finca Tres Robles and Small Places. Uh, Aaron, Rachel, Tommy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah, thanks for inviting me. So just to start us off, um, maybe with Rachel, can you just tell us about Plant It Forward and what your organization does? Yes. Plant It Forward is a Houston-based nonprofit. We work exclusively with resettled refugees, and our mission is to empower them to develop sustainable farms that feed Houston. We work with a network of about 50 practicing farmers. We provide training and technical assistance. We provide farmers with access to fair markets via our food hub where the farmers mm -hmm. can sell their product. And we also have a special emphasis on urban farming. So we manage four urban farm sites in Houston. Great. And Tommy, can you tell us a little about what you do? <laughs> yeah, so Small Place is a nonprofit and we use urban farming as a tool to upend systemic inequalities at mm. the neighborhood level. Um, so we run our urban farm that most people know us as is Finca Tres Robles. That's Spanish for Three Oaks Farm. Mm. So we were founded in 2014 and we leased an acre and a quarter of land there. We do community-based food production, food distribution, we do farmer training, uh, education, and then really trying to be like a community green space. So a place mm. for our community to gather uh, build community pride, to learn, to to feel welcome and safe, and um, yeah, to connect. Yeah, and that's terrific. I'm I'm yeah. curious because hearing both of you, you know, urban farming is something that you're you're highlighting here. What what does urban farming mean and <laughs> look like? What, why is this significant? Most straightforward. <laughs> it's farming in an urban space. All right, so just what it sounds like, great. <laughs> exactly. No tricks. Um, but it is farming in the places where we live. Mm -hmm. And as folks who have chosen to live in the city, that is important to, I mean, Tommy and I have talked about this, to us in particular, because we're attracted to agriculture. But mm -hmm. we know that it's also important to the broader community because of the response that people have when they find this, not, uh, this living green space in an unexpected place. And a farm is much more than the lawn style parks that we're so used to. Um, and the community is hungry for that kind of connection. Pun intended there. Pun intended. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll pass it over to Tommy. Yeah, I think it's actually a great question, Weston, because when people say urban farming or urban ag, a lot of time people can their brains can go to like a community garden mm. or some other kind of more community-based small-scale models and there's nothing wrong with that i think something that we want to talk about within our organization is how we describe our work as really a professional endeavor mm. um, that requires skill requires experience requires knowledge um, requires an investment of time and energy that would be different for like a community garden. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's an important distinction. Um, and it's why we're in the city. It's like I tell people, we're not an urban farm because we think it's cool. <laughs> we're an urban farm because we see it as a strategic initiative mm. to have this conversation, right? If I was out in Brenham 
and had to drive an hour and a half in. It's like harder to get into the center where this is where everything's happening. Like yeah. this, the seat of power is here. This is where culture, economy, uh, so much power is in these urban centers. And we believe that agriculture is on the periphery because we don't have a say. And the people who do have a say, they don't have a deep understanding of the importance of agriculture within our economy, within our culture. And that's not just in urban settings, that's in rural places as well. Mm. So we want to be here and have voice and, and have conversation and try to get our city to maybe understand the value of it. And that's what we say is like, why, why aren't there farms in urban places? And our answer, and this is after like years and years of farming there, is that we don't see it as valuable enough to be on valuable land. Mm. And that's why we're here, because we're saying actually it's extremely valuable and it's worth putting on valuable land. Hmm. Uh, thank you so much for telling us about that. I think, you know, um, urban uh, farming, urban gardening obviously fulfills a role role of uh, meeting needs in food deserts. That's obviously a primary function, and I know we're going to talk about that. But one thing to, to come back to your answers there, what's so fascinating is what you're doing and why it's so important, too, is because it's reconnecting us to our food systems. And again, Tommy, you mentioned it's something that's often invisible to many of us city dwellers. But it's so primal, so important. Um, and it's it's in, it's complete, well, not completely, but it's often invisibilized. So having that um, access to how our food is grown, how it is produced with labor, but the works of the soil and the air and the sunlight and how it happens, it doesn't magically appear in a grocery store, is such an important function of what you're doing. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I'm not quite sure where to start. Yeah. yeah, that's like my journey. <laughs> like I'm a native Houstonian. I didn't grow food growing up. Um, and we often like criticize our children for not knowing where food comes from. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really it's the it's all of us. You know, we just we know that food doesn't come from the grocery store. But because that is where we interact with it. Um, we really don't understand the all of the pieces and moving parts that are behind it. And I think that's a social problem, actually. Uh, people talk about food deserts like it's... Um, Can you give us the definition of a food desert just so we, we have it on the record? Yeah, it's... I mean, to be honest, we use this term a lot and it's thrown around a lot. It, basically, it means a, a community that lacks access to mm -hmm. fresh foods. Um, but in the urban farming movement in particular, in the food movement, we're trying to move away from that word. It's like okay. more common and it's more, I think I say it and people know what I mean. <laughs> I think that's why it's still used. But, um, I think the, the critique of it is this understanding that we think it just kind of happened to be like this, like, mm. oh, this community is a food desert. It's like, you know. It, like just it just happened. Yeah, it's just a naturally occurring phenomenon, right? But it's really a symptom of or a, a product of our current food system, mm. which really doesn't. Well, an underinvestment, much. disinvestment in particular areas. Another term is food apartheid. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the system, it's built into the system of food. 
Well, I think that's something that we keep coming back to, right, is this kind of, you know, both the idea of like, okay, food doesn't come from a grocery store, which someone who outside of trying to grow seven tomatoes on my patio and kind of failing at it, um, you know, most of my experience is buying food from the grocery store. What are these systems we're talking about? Particularly, like, what are the environmental impacts of the American agricultural system is huge, right? Like, there's a never-ending list there. But as we're talking about reconnecting to, to how food is grown, how it's made, can you talk to us some um, about some of this, you know, what does industrialized agriculture look like and and what are some of these problems and in ways that you're trying to address it at a very small scale level of having us rethink what our food system could be? I mean, I guess in summary, industrialized agriculture is about a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. It is soil erosion. It's the depletion of our soils broadly, and it is sterile landscapes mm. that are monocropped. Um, it's industrialized. Uh, I can't call it farming, but raising animals in an industrialized way. Um, mm. And what we're doing broadly in the small-scale agriculture world, in regenerative agriculture, is using, frankly, pretty traditional farming practices to create mm. a diversified ecosystem that's also productive and growing food to eat. Um, but it is you know, using sweets, a suite of practices that enrich our soil and create vibrant, flourishing landscapes. It collaborates um, with the ecologies within your in which you're embedded. Yeah, both of our eyebrows went up at that. Yeah, I love that, um, <laughs> that framing. I think the regenerative agriculture as well, something that I hear folks talk a lot about is actually something you were talking about at the beginning is really that community role. That yes, it's absolutely these practices of, you know, soil care and crop, you know, and how we're thinking of actually, but also it's very much that gets to that kind of educational component you were talking about and that community component and really a lot of the folks who I hear talk in this space, that's really a priority for them, which is just a different way of engaging with our food system altogether. Yeah, and I, I think part of the reason why I've really loved and appreciate and grateful for being on this journey in the food world is trying to get deeper, like pulling the curtain back on the system, you know, and trying to, like, we're on the ground growing food for our communities. There's obviously an economic aspect of it. It's not just like we're out there playing in the dirt, which I think a lot of people think we do. Mm. Um, but I remember like something that was a really important learning point for me is, I don't know if you're familiar with the USDA MyPlate. No. <laughs> it's it's just like your standard USDA recommendation for uh, what okay. we should eat, right? And it's like this cute little plate. Is this our, our new version of the food pyramid? Exactly. Not as maybe horribly inaccurate as the food pyramid. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, it's like a really simple communicative tool it's for easy to digest. what we should be eating, We're just going to keep right? doing these all, all day. <laughs> but half the plate is fruit and vegetables, half the plate is meat and grains, mm. and then they got to put milk on there, of course. Um, Why? Why do they have to put milk on there? Because we have a big dairy industry in our country, and, and, you know, I think it's more complicated than just, like, growing lots of food, monocropping is bad, and what we do is good, right? There's, like... There's a lot of people and we got to feed them. And there's some of those things, you know, we couldn't just like stop 
our like huge ag industry and mm -hmm. we'd all be fine. You know, there's there's a reality to the system. Right. But the point that I want to make is my brother Dan and I started to look at. So that's what the USDA says we should be eating. So we set up another plate called subsidize my plate. Mm. And there's basically zero subsidies for fruit and vegetables in our country. Right. And then we called it grow my plate. And we look at the breakdown of, of land use in agriculture and fruit and vegetables is like less than 1%. Um, so, you know, we have like the same department basically doing the opposite thing. Mm -hmm. And when people, when we talk about food deserts or communities that lack access to fresh produce, I'm like, of course, right? That makes sense to me because we're not subsidizing or funding or supporting the thing that should be half of our plate, right? Well, and that's, you know, I, I'm not trying to put milk in the hot seat here. <laughs> I'm not anti-milk. I, I asked the question partially because I, I wanted to get to do exactly what you're pointing out, right, of, of what industries do we really see well represented, both at, you know, really at a policy level, right? And my understanding from having heard both of you speak before <laughs> is that there, there's not as much support perhaps for, for smaller localized food systems and food networks. And Rachel, I'm wondering if you want to talk some about, you know, what are the, the policy challenges to regenerative agriculture, to, to localized farming, to some of the things that I know Plant It Forward has really been pushing? So exactly to Tommy's point that there there's no subsidies, and from that there's no structural support to small-scale growers. The USDA is starting to do some things oriented towards diversified vegetable farms, um, but it's a very small portion of their budget. And, you know, in our particular cases in urban spaces, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot is how insane our water costs are. So very specifically in Houston, farmers are paying you know, the same as someone would pay to water their lawn to grow vegetables. Mm. Uh, so this summer we saw $4,000 water bills on two-acre sites. You know, we were in a drought um, and it's summertime. I mean, that's not payable. It's not a viable amount for someone to pay. And, of course, on the flip side, um, we do hear not infrequently uh, some frustration from the community about how expensive produce is. But of course, from our perspective, the farmer is not being paid nearly enough. Um, someone might, at the end of the day, take home $30,000 from their work growing on an acre. And meanwhile, they have these very high expenses um, and there's other, you know, expenses associated with operating in an urban space that are very um, unusual in agriculture, particular to being urban. You know, there we could go down this road farther, <laughs> but I think this is, you know, one example that illustrates the the lack of support. And it is surprising because people are very excited about small-scale agriculture, regenerative agriculture. They love to see farms in urban places. Um, but when it comes down to it, there's no support. And as Plant mm -hmm. It Forward, you know, I question if we should be in an urban place because we are working with a low-resource 
population um, of people who just want to farm, they aren't in particular drawn to being in an urban place. It's just where where we are. Mm. Um, of course, we as an organization do see the value of having it in an urban place. But, um, yeah, this, these are all challenges for us just given how expensive it is to be a farmer and you know i'll just say in general farming in the u.s isn't particularly viable half of u.s farms lose money mm. so i've just introduced all of the now we're into the, it yeah. Here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just to piggyback off what rachel's saying it's like i can't think of a policy that's there that's supporting small ag you know there's nothing really there and I was literally in a USD office today to sign a loan, talking with an official there. And this was for a separate business that we run. And we were talking about different loans that they give out to cattle ranchers and corn and other commodity farmers. And then he got to the vegetable farmers and he says, yeah, usually we give a loan to the vegetable farmer. Um, and they're going to use that operating loan to get a crop so they can afford to grow the next crop in the season to the next crop to the season to the next crop to the season and they get to the end of the season and there's nothing to pay back into the system. Mm. And they understand that as this is how it works, mm -hmm. right? What that actually means then is that we're putting this individual in debt to create food for our system that we know they're never getting the money back from him. Mm -hmm. So we're basically just putting this farmer in debt and they are subsidizing our food system, which is really interesting. And, and it's a challenging problem. It's a challenging problem because there's on the one side, if you're growing vegetables in particular, um, there's only a price that the market can bear, right? There's a cultural expectation that food should be cheap. Which is understandable in my community. They can't afford the price that I deserve for my food. And even when I sell my food at the best, the highest end farmer's market here, I think I would have to sell it at least three times the cost to earn what the average American would say is like a living wage with benefits and things like that. So it doesn't, those economics don't work, which is why. There's no farmers in Houston. It's like people are like, oh, there's no farming in Houston. I'm like, well, I've been doing it for 10 <laughs> years here. I feel pretty confident why there's no farmers here. And that's where it's like until we find other ways to take the burden of subsidies off of the farmers themselves or most often the, those that are actually doing the farm work, um, I just don't see where where we have this like groundswell of people going out and doing regenerative agriculture to feed our communities. Sorry, I was going to just say, um, Tommy, hearing you say that that I the image of the plate that you mentioned at the beginning then comes back to my mind because the recommendation is half of that's filled with f fruit and veg, which isn't being subsidized in the same way. I, I'd love to hear you talk about the central role of subsidizing corn and soybean. Mm. Um, that is really underlying this whole system and, and how it, it is also, uh, you know, the central pillar to then livestock, you know, feeding and meat producing. Um, and again, fruit and veg shifted off to the side. It, my take on that is it's not one or the other, right? It's both and. It, 
part of the reason we subsidize agriculture, and it's a complicated discussion, but part of it is that agriculture is not economically viable within our current system. So we have to do that. And even with those subsidies, 95% of farmers, and this is a USDA stat, 95% of farmers work off-farm, right? So that means even with subsidies, most of them are still having to bring in income off-farm. And so it economically, we just we haven't figured it out how to support an, an agricultural system. And then the bigger piece is farming on scale with big tractors is a lot easier, right? Mm-hmm. And corn and soy are two examples of like crops that you can grow with the, that sort of machinery on that sort of scale with a meaningful payoff, like soy, I mean, like a protein, a nitrogen fixer, like that's like what an incredible crop. And corn too is such an incredible crop, but we've kind of just, it's just kind of like permutated into this um, like one thing <laughs> that kind of, underlines and props up so much of our food system. And it lives outside the regenerative cycle that you all are working mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up in Iowa, the <laughs> land of corn and soybean. Um, so that was my first entry point into agriculture. Um, and I agree that it's it's a both-and scenario. And there are farmers who are growing at scale and trying to introduce regenerative practices um, and are doing so. Although, of course, I mean, I think that in a monocropped landscape, Can you just define monocrop for us? (laughs) Sure. Uh, Yeah, having one crop in your field. And when we're looking at corn and soy, Mm -hmm. we're talking hundreds of acres. And so why is that significant? Why Why are we not in favor of monocropping? There's just no diversity in in that landscape, and to maintain it, people are using heavy, typically pesticides and herbicides, which further is going to harm the ecosystem health. Fertilizers as well, which then gets us into lovely fertilizer runoff conversations in the right. Gulf of Mexico in dead zones, and so just yeah. to, <laughs> to clarify, there there are some very tangible repercussions to this system of agriculture. So, and it's funny you bring up the dead zones because yeah. small places comes from a, it's a Wendell Berry essay mm. called the contempt contempt for small places, and in it he refers to the fact that the way we farm in Iowa like affects us on the Gulf Coast, mm-hmm. and that we can't, you know, immunize us somewhere else because of the work that we do here. We're we're all connected. The health of Small places is the same as the health of large places. Um, Large destructions are small destructions added up, right? And I think that's kind of the approach that I'm not going to speak for Rachel here, but I feel like we're probably similar in that when we're looking at the problem in such a large framework, Mm -hmm. it becomes overwhelming to address. And so we're always trying to find this big solution to the big problem. And really, we view it as it's just a lot of small problems that have all kind of coagulated into this bigger issue. So what can we do? We say if the problem's over, if the problem's overwhelming, then you're thinking too big. That's mm-hmm. kind of our approach. So how do we start thinking um, smaller? And that's something that we can do as individuals. And now 
that we're a part of organizations that have coagulated people who care and are willing to invest in smaller places or in their community or into certain populations. And you start creating something that's a little bigger, a little more meaningful, that has more conversation around it. And that's kind of been our strategy of how we like think about the big problems and bring that back to us where we are in an urban community, right? That doesn't, we're not looking at, we're not in Iowa, <laughs> right? We're not looking at thousands of acres of corn and soy. I think that's also just such valuable thinking for a range of environmental issues, though. You know, this this kind of approach of, yes, these are huge problems. They are climate change fuels, you know, kind of untackleable, but actually working at the local level, working at these, you know, kind of small compounding actions really has effect. And I think that's really incredibly valuable work. Yeah, I I agree. It's why we're still farming. We <laughs> We see that every day, you know, it's. It's, I'm not trying to make it sentimental. It's like we do this and our community supports it because they get direct value out of it, mm. you know? And that's super meaningful. And what I love about farming in this work is it's very action-oriented. And I think it's hard. It's hard. I can't imagine people being in the environmental movement because I feel like you're just like talking policy and writing papers <laughs> and like showing up to pipelines, here, it's like we're producing a healthy product for people that we know, and there's an exchange and there's relationship, and we're doing environmental work, I would argue. Absolutely. Um, so there's just like this really positive, action-oriented work that we're able to do, and I feel like that's why we've been able to attract so many amazing people into our organization to help us grow food at personal expense, right? Because I would argue that myself and our all of our staff who have worked with us over the last 10 years have subsidized the food for our community. I you know, agree with everything that, that Tommy's laying out and just want to piggyback to say that um, the community is very excited about the work. Anytime that mm -hmm. I tell people about Plant It Forward, their eyes light up. Anytime that someone... Um, visits a farm they you know will start they'll be that one kid that corners you and will not stop talking about <laughs> their picking berries with their grandma no. um, people love it they need we need that connection and we've you know so far removed ourselves from growing food but also from nature and mm -hmm. the world of plants and animals and we need that as humans um is so there we do see so much value in the work um but again it is particularly hard you know as two organizations that are dedicated to farming which is a job there's no money in it and it's just yeah so it, this is our our circle. Yeah, and that's why we're having the conversation, <laughs> yeah. right? That's that's why we do it because and I'll give an example. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure this is probably similar for you guys even more than us. Um but we would get an in, at least once a month an inquiry to come to a farmers market. Okay. Mm -hmm. In some part of Houston. In the Houston metropolitan area, West Houston, Lake Jackson, Pasadena, 
Pearland, Woodlands, you name it, we've been invited to it. And after a few, like we tell them no, they're like, do you know know any other farmers? I'm like, not that are looking for Mm. a farmer's market. And then I'll hear a couple months later, it's like, well, they're not running the market anymore. Mm. But in my experience, I've talked to those folks and they think it's their fault. Like they're not, they're not doing Mm. a good enough job to run a farmer's market. Mm. But never do we take that next step of like, why aren't there any farmers, you know? And I think as a community, as we start engaging the the issue a little bit, maybe we'll start digging a little bit more than just saying like, oh, there's a food desert over there. And then that's where the conversation ends, you know, or we can't start the farmer's market. It's like, then the conversation ends. (laughs) And we want to like take the next step. It's like, well, ask why, why is it like that? And I think that's a really important conversation and it has to be had until we understand a little deeper the problem that it's economic, but there's things, there's the, the levers are already there, right? We're already subsidizing things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, can you speak some to what what are tangible changes or actions that you think are really needed to help make regenerative agriculture more sustainable, more economically viable and more realistic for people? Go big. Why not? <laughs> well, we would probably start with providing subsidies um, that are more in line with the amount of fruit and veg that we are aiming to eat. Um, I admit that my thoughts on this have been very focused on a, a local level and on what we might be able to act on. And so some of the go big, I haven't even read What's rep possible my mind. at the local level? Then? Uh, at the local level, we could have the city provide free water to mm. urban farmers. At the local level, um, for tax purposes, typically agricultural land will be um, valued at a different lower rate than land for development purposes, um, but there's rules around how land qualifies for that that exclude basically any urban farm. Mm. And so those rules could be adjusted at the county level so that urban farms are not paying excessive taxes. Those are like the things that we've talked about as a farming community that are there that we could change or we think is is realistic to change. Um but some of the bigger changes, like how do we convince Harris County to invest in it more? You know, mm-hmm. they they had something called the Healthy Food Financing Initiative back in 2020, yeah. I think it was. And it was like a $2 million investment in local ag. And I think they actually only invested like 700000 of that. Because there's not that, there, were, there weren't enough farming organizations to actually invest in. Um, but th- it's like we – there are players – in the re in our in our region that could make some direct investments and that's there needs to be capital investments you know it's great for people to buy our food and we need people to do that but at the end of the day that's not going to keep our organization running so i think there's also an in on an individual level um people can make an investment and it doesn't need to be ten thousand dollars right it can be twenty five dollars a month on top of the food that you're purchasing, you know? And um, I remember we had someone tell us, um, if you wait for someone else to do something, you're going to be waiting a long time, right? And 
that goes back to the small things, right? If the problem's so big that it's overwhelming us and we're thinking too big, but it's, we all are in control of our own funds, right? And, you know, you hear a lot of people, it's like, yeah, go buy local, but it's, for me, it's like more than that. It's, it's, we're personally making investments in mm -hmm. this because we believe that it's worth investing in. And if we can get more people to do that, um, I think that's important. And we've seen that in our community, what we love is the people who are part of our farm are not, our farming community are not foodies, you know? And that's what I love about farming in the community is these are people who just like appreciate the space and appreciate meeting other people there and having fun there. Mm. And that's what we miss about farming. We think it's like this health and like wellness endeavor, which it is at a, at a base level. But it's also about just like connecting with our environment, connecting with our place, knowing about our place. It's like I've learned so much about Houston by farming here. Can you talk more about that? I grew up in Houston and it's just like we just thought it was like cars and <laughs> oil and gas. And, you know, we literally went from our house to the church to our school and our sports like that was Houston to us. And when I started farming here. This is the most incredible climate I've ever lived and farmed in. Mm. It's madness. Incredible good. It's absolute madness. It's like I farmed in Iowa and Maine. And yeah, there's a lot of ups and downs. And I'm not going to say it's not hard to farm there, but it's different. And I farmed in the tropics and Houston's kind of a amalgamation of both of those. I agree with that. So I got to know Houston through farming and... I agree that, of course, when you're farming, you're very in touch with the climate and the environment. And Houston is a really interesting mix, the subtropical zone where you can do a bunch of the normal U.S. crops in the winter. And then in the summer, you flirt with some tropical crops. Um, I think Houston's climate is really cool although of course we then can get 10 inches of rain dropped in a day and the winters are super mild except for the one day where it freezes and as a farmer that really sets you back so it is you know any any farmer will tell you that the climate is is challenging but but Houston but it's like what about is. your farmers like how do they feel about the climate right yeah, they, they, grow. they like that. So our farmers typically are coming from um, tropical-ish places. And so they like the summer a lot um, and that they can grow cassava leaves and roselle leaves. Um, they are very confused, especially in the beginning when they're starting by the winter and um, the freezes. And so it's it's an adjustment. Um, but I mean, water drainage is a, is an issue in mm. Houston. Um, but I also agree from a personal level, the people who are attracted to the farm are amazing. And I've gotten to know so many good people through farming and it's been such a great entry point, um, into Houston. I'm wondering if you can talk some just about, you know, climate is changing. Things in, in Houston are changing. We just had our hottest summer on record. 
what are some of the challenges to farming in this area that are that are getting perhaps more intense or that are changing or the things you're seeing that you're having to adapt now? Because I, I, I guess to some, 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 that, <laughs> to some degree, I'm imagining that, you know, uh, the way that you farmed 10 years ago probably isn't even the same way that you farm now or that at least some changes have occurred. Can you talk some about that? So I, I don't think I've been around farming in Houston enough to have a lot of visibility on how it has changed. Um, certainly weather is famously variable and it does change week to week and year to year and that's something that farmers always contend with. Um, it does seem generally that the cold snaps are getting a bit more frequent and that um, you know, the rain in particular, rain patterns are expected to be more volatile. It's pretty scary to think that there might be more um, tropical storms. Obviously, we had a very dry year this year, um, but it is typically our problem in Houston is too much water, and that is a really tricky problem. There's no slope in Houston, and, you know, we're, we're in a swamp. So thinking about a future where heavy rain events are more common is intimidating. Um, I wouldn't say that we know what you know to do about that. It's just an iterative process of doing what you can in this week and this season. You know, we just had Indigenous People Day mm -hmm. not that long ago, right? And something that we thought about is it's like. You know, I've been farming here for 10 years, and I feel like the place has just changed for me. But what if we had been connected to this place consistently for thousands of years? Like, what the depth of our knowledge of this place is. So I think that's important context for us is we really, um, from an agricultural and environmental perspective, have very little knowledge of, like, what this place actually is. So our experience on the farm is, like, how do we learn and how do we just like engage and think. And I think that's really important to us. I, you know, my brother actually said today, it's like, what if, if the weather is on a trend, like we expect it is, that this could actually be the easiest year of farming that we have to look forward to. And that was like a potential reality, right? <laughs> Um, and I think for me, that doesn't really bother me. It's, I think we've, if you're farming in Houston, or this is my perspective, we have to accept the realities of what Houston is. Um, mm -hmm. And we've been trying to do that and learning, learning about it. Um, and every year we try to take every extreme weather event with the normal weather and try to deepen our understanding of how we do that, whether that's we have to seed extra uh, backup crops. So if we have a freeze, we have a replacement crop for it. There's caterpillar tunnels. We use shade cloth and plastic. And, you know, there's a number of strategies. But I think us farming and trying to find ways to do that in ground in our community is a better solution than what I often hear. I, I'm not saying this as in opposition to it, but, for example, people always bring up, like, oh, what about aquaponics or hydroponics? Mm, mm -hmm. And um, 
and this is where I, I want to make a distinction um, because it's about growing food. But then I see pictures of people working in these places and they're in jumpsuits wearing nitrile gloves and hair nets and stuff, harvesting food. And I'm just like, that's what we're going to teach our kids about food and our relationship to the world. I just, I just see a big disconnect on what farming actually is. It's not, mm. it's not about food. It is, but it's not. And until we like understand that, it's relationship with place. Mm. It's relationship with place. And we have to invest in learning about that relationship. And that's, that's why I don't have an answer for you, except that we do it every year and we try to come up with a solution. And I'll, I'm nodding my head vigorously. Um, and I want to like, emphasize that to me, this is a really exciting area of opportunity that if we create a system where we can have many small farms doing this iterative work of um, figuring out what practices work in this microclimate and breeding seeds that work here, like that is very exciting. That's how we're going to adapt to climate change um, and how we're going to be connected to the environment and to each other. These just fundamental human needs that we have. Um, and it, it doesn't need to be scary. Of course, I think that um, outside of farming, there need to be solutions to prevent worsening climate change but as farmers who are going to be reacting to it I mean people have been adapting to our environment since people existed and it's this fundamental part of what of our heritage and our inheritance that we all come from people who were seed breeders and um innovators and so much of human innovation has actually been through food and farming it's something i like to think about who is the first person who um discovered that coriander is so, so delicious um <laughs> and who bred it to be delicious and that is work that doesn't just have to happen um in controlled environments in universities if we can all be part of that even as home gardeners mm. um so that's what what that brought yeah. up for me we just got to engage everyone wants to have the answer and my <laughs> thing is we have to just engage the question mm. you know Wendell Berry says you know fluorescent under fluorescent lights in air-conditioned rooms is not where we're going to find the solutions you know and I think engaging with our place the people in our place that's where like new ideas come and where we get um, kind of the motivation to do our work mm, thank you so much guys this is so fascinating to hear Rachel, I love the optimism you have as a farmer, someone who knows how to, you know, create food um, and the life moving forward and that you can adapt. That's so, that's a beautiful message. And then one of the other things I'm hearing, Tommy, you talk about, you know, being a climate activist or environmental activist, being on the street and protesting and how you all are activists of a different sort, which is so powerful. You are literally doing the work of changing our relationship to place, as you said, but community. So you're really challenging the idea of our extractive 
ways of being, right? That are part of modern living. And it's how we get our food. You go to the grocery store or the way that industrial farming is so extractive. It's not part of a regenerative system. It harms. Yes, it creates bundles of food, high yields, but it's not sustainable in a way that is circular and regenerative um, and sustainable. So I love this idea of you being activists simultaneously in a way just challenging that that relationship and 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 also um, creating a model for others right that's so important we as your neighbors get to maybe come in and put our hands in the soil with you and learn and then get infected with that meme of wanting that connection both with the land itself the soil the production of food, the optimism that comes with it, the confidence that comes with it, the self-determination that comes with it, but also that connection um, to community that you were talking about, Tommy. That is so huge. Not wearing a hazmat suit as you're doing it. Um, it it's just really inspiring. Um, we're, we're kind of heading towards the end of this conversation, so I, I just want to give you both uh, some space to just talk about ways that folks can get involved, things that you want to share with us and kind of final thoughts, or are there things that we should be doing or that we should know about in your work that, uh, that would be useful for you to, to share with us? So as we've been talking about, there are great ways to be involved um, from buying produce from local farmers at farmers markets or pretty much any local farm has a direct way to direct buy directly from the farm through a CSA. Um, come to the farm. We will have tours in the fall. Um, we'll have community work days. So lots of good opportunities for people to come. We can do special tours or work days for groups. Well, I'll let Tommy speak to what. <laughs> what they have going on right now. Yeah, if you can find the farm that's closest to you and just give them some money, that would be a good place <laughs> to start. <laughs> um, buying produce is obviously great because um, it's a mutual relationship. Um, we're actually in the process of moving, relocating our farm one block away. Um, so we're in a capital campaign. So if you're interested in supporting our new farm, you can go to our website um, and, and donate there. Uh, but something that I... I like, this is like always a problem, like what do you do, right? And the best answer that I've come up with and come across is actually Wendell Berry reference. He says, do something that doesn't compute. And for me, that means do something that doesn't make sense within the logic of our culture. Um, and I, everyone can do that, you know? And I think it can be anywhere from like driving home, not on the freeway. Mm. Because if you don't go by the fr the freeway is the fastest point from A to B. So if you take a ground route, maybe you'll see something that you've never seen before in your place, right? Um, or coming home and your kids, the dishes are dirty because <laughs> your kids didn't come home from school and clean them up and show them compassion, even though you're pretty frustrated with them, you know? Or... I don't know. Instead of going out for a meal that's really expensive that you deserve because you worked hard for your money, instead of saying, no, I'm going to give it to Plant It Forward. I mean, there's decisions every day that we can make that get out of this logic of mm -hmm. our culture that I think a lot of us are frustrated with that don't change the world, but it allows us to step outside of that logic and carve like a different experience. 
And I feel like those different experiences help us kind of find that hope that we're all looking for, right? I think we're all looking for today, and it's it's really hard to find. But doing something that doesn't make sense, I think, is a place that we can find some joy, surprisingly. Well, that is a great note to end on. So I, I just want to say again, Tommy, Rachel, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me in the conversation today. I've so enjoyed speaking with all of you, and thank you for all of the great work you're doing around town. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Weston. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Now we'll go over to our researcher, Jaden, who will talk to us about a new, really exciting series that she's coming up with that I think you're really going to uh, appreciate and, and enjoy learning more about. Hi, everyone. I'm thrilled to announce that in the upcoming weeks, through a series of short stories, we'll delve into the critical issues of water conservation and sustainability. Water sits at the core of, well, everything. It nourishes societies and underpins the very essence of our existence. Water conservation and sustainability impact a vast range of topics from global food security, such as agriculture, which is a cornerstone of human civilization, as it depends on water for irrigation and crop production. Further, sustainable water practices are essential for ensuring food security globally. This issue is so pressing that in the event of water scarcity, it can lead to crop failures, which lead to food shortages and increased vulnerability to climate-related disruptions. Implementing water-efficient agricultural techniques, optimizing irrigation systems, and adopting resilient crops contribute to a sustainable and secure food supply for our growing global population. The topic of water conservation and sustainability also extends to ecosystems. Water is the lifeline for ecosystems. It is a key factor in maintaining biodiversity and ecological balance. Aquatic habitats, wetlands, and rivers are interwoven, forming the foundation of diverse ecosystems. By conserving water, we are able to protect the habitats of countless species, preserving the delicate balance of flora and fauna that sustains the health of our planet. One area where water conservation and sustainability efforts are extremely important are on college campuses. Colleges across the world are recognizing the urgency of creating effective, sustainable practices. From energy efficiency initiatives to waste reduction programs, universities are enacting a variety of measures to reduce the environmental impact. An extraordinary example of this is an integration of renewable energy sources such as solar panels and wind turbines to help power universities. Moreover, universities are strongly urging sustainable transportation alternatives, encouraging students and faculty to bike, walk, and use electric vehicles when possible to reduce carbon emissions. Ultimately, the impact of sustainability initiatives on college campuses extends far beyond the immediate environmental benefits. These initiatives provide students with practical experience in problem-solving, critical thinking, and collaboration, which are all essential skills for addressing complex global issues. As students engage with sustainable practices during their academic career, they become strong advocates for changing the way we use the environment. Additionally, with these new skills, students will likely carry these principles into the workforce and their communities. So in the upcoming weeks, we will discuss a variety of topics from practical tips and tricks that can be effortlessly incorporated into your home to the inception and integration of eco-friendly technologies into our daily routines. This discussion will extend to encompass broader subjects like sustainability and conservation policy and advocacy, as well as sustainable agricultural practices. I'm very much looking forward to engaging in conversations about these highly relevant subjects with you and sharing crucial information on how each and every one of us can contribute to making the world more sustainable and eco-friendly. Our first story will delve into the initiatives promoting sustainability within college campuses. 
exploring avenues for turning these large-scale operations into practices that can be implemented on a smaller scale, whether that be within the confines of your home or integrated into your daily routines. So with that, I urge you to stay tuned for insightful stories covering these themes and more. So until then, I wish each and every one of you a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks. Up next, I, I just wanted to highlight one of the great ways to get involved around town this week. So on Saturday, December 16th, from 8.30 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. at Buffalo Bayou Park, um, Houstonians age 9 and up are invited to join Buffalo Bayou Partnership for community-wide volunteer days. Uh, these happen regularly every third Saturday of each month, and so it's coming up uh, on this third Saturday of the month. Uh, and whether you're volunteering as an individual or a small group, your efforts help to build a better environment for all of us and support the great work that Buffalo Bayou Partnership does. Um, and so I really encourage folks who are, if we're looking for a way to get out, maybe to meet some of their folks who are interested in volunteering and getting involved around the environment. Uh, it's a great way to go out and meet some other folks and, and get your hands dirty a little bit, uh, helping to make a, one of our great parks a little bit better. Um, a quick reminder, if you are enjoying Gulf Streams, uh, please check out our podcast. Uh, you can listen to previous episodes anytime on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we also feature occasional bonus content only available through the podcast. So make sure to subscribe so you can keep up to date on all the news, stories, and ideas featured here. And if you have a friend who you think really cares about the environment or would like to learn more, please tell them about Gulf Streams and, and help others to go and find out about the work we're doing here. Next time on Gulf Streams, we're talking with Jim Blackburn, Professor of Practice and Environmental Law and Co-Director of Rice's Severe Storm Prediction, Education, and Evacuation from Disaster Center, the Speed Center. Uh, and we'll be learning about some of the risks that are affecting the area that we're in and some of the different mitigation ideas to help protect us, especially from hurricanes and related storms. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio, produced by Weston Twardowski. Co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray-Boyce and CNEN. Stay tuned for the R&R &R show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.